Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. This episode, we're talking with Yana Skorstengard about her thesis in art therapy. Her research reveals great results from programs for incarcerated folks. Programs involving art can create the kind of self-expression and other communication skills necessary for functional relationships, which, to my understanding, is the whole purpose of rehabilitative incarceration, to rebuild the skills necessary for functional relationships, not just with society as a whole, but with all the individuals that make it up. Outside of programs within incarceration, there are also alternatives available to a very small number of incarcerated folks, including Indigenous healing lodges for Indigenous incarcerated peoples. While I acknowledge both she and I are settlers, which is to say non-Indigenous to this land, the success of the healing lodge programs and our inability to create more spaces like them is too important not to mention, so we're going to go ahead and try in our flawed way and in a somewhat self-aware fashion, to talk about um, Yana's findings in visiting Indigenous healing lodges and how effective they are statistically for Indigenous folks. Strategies developed by Indigenous peoples in relationship repair and accountability for harming other folks in society are often radically different in approach from European-descended strategies like incarceration itself, and it's worth lifting up the voices and values of marginalized cultures I think this is especially easy when values align. For example, settler society here in Canada values efficiency, effectiveness, and science-mindedness. Really, we love numbers. We love numeric results. And it plays a huge role in, hopefully, how we choose to spend our money as a society. However, when we see marginalized cultures that don't hold these values of capitalism and efficiency being so much more successful than us numerically, the least we can do as settlers if we want to be right with our own value systems is just try to suck less and learn the best we can about why we are so bad at doing the things we tell ourselves we're so good at doing. Other than the obvious option of just being less racist in how we jail, how we try, and how we sentence folks, sucking less is probably easiest when we become open to these win-win situations. 
our values for results are very aligned with indigenous values for relationship repair as a holistic process that considers offenders and victims, not just the relationship between offender and society focused all around this social contract to use colonial language. So TLDR, we could be less violent in how we treat consequences of harming others. There are ways to divert people who would be harmed by our traditional system. Yet we haven't capitalized on solutions like healing lodges that improve recidivism rates by about 100%, which is to say half the number who leave incarceration come back to incarceration. That is a truly remarkable accomplishment, literally twice as effective at what we supposedly value, rehabilitation and a restoration of the social contract. Well, that's enough of me rambling about this anyways. We should get to session with Yana and she can tell you more about how art can help people become more intimate with themselves and what her experience was visiting a healing lodge as a settler. I will welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. Today, our guest is Jana Skorstengard, a friend of mine from childhood and also a master's student at University of Ottawa doing her thesis on arts programs in prisons in Canada for women on probation and parole. So today we're going to be talking about Indigenous healing lodges um, and possibly touching on healing circles, transformative justice, and restorative justice in the context of diverting people from conventional systems as a way of transitioning away from those systems and to more effective programs that mm -hmm. accomplish correction and rehabilitation better mm -hmm. than incarceration and punitive measures. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So do you want to start into <clears throat> introducing what a healing lodge is? Uh, yeah. So the, my kind of first experience with it was, um, I vaguely knew what they were. Um, and, but you don't really realize the impact of them until you get into them. So, um, I'll just pull up like a general definition, um, mm -hmm. for folks. It's going to take me a second. Um, so healing lodges in Canada um, are Indigenous-led, um, and they are specifically for Indigenous offenders. So they offer culturally appropriate services um, and programs such as, like, access to elders, um, access to uh, things like smudging, um, ceremony, and medicine um, that are really crucial to Indigenous culture. Um, and this is all part of the CSC it's all encapsulated in the CSC mandate of public safety um, in that it is crucial they or they say that it is crucial to give indigenous people access to their culture which I mean for a colonial system like CSC to do that and say that um, <clears throat> is good but there's more work that needs to be done um, but there are only pretty incredible to me they've even got that far yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot more work to be done. There are only like, there are only a few in Canada. I think there's only one healing lodge for women. Ooh, okay. Um, there are a lot more for men. Um, but I really hope that they start to open more because the indigenous incarceration rate is so high. And these, um, it's really hard to get into a healing lodge. I think their capacity, the one that I was at was, uh, 51 people was the capacity. Oof. Yeah, that's not a lot of people. If there are only no. three in Canada. Yeah. 
So tell me more about this alternative to traditional punishment and incarceration that tends to not rehabilitate people to being participating functional members of society. How does, how are healing lodges different? Um, I think that they're different in terms of, well, from what I saw is that the, the men in the lodge that I worked with, um, I only worked with about, uh, eight or nine of them. Um, because it was a classroom based setting and there were, um, specific types of offenders who were not allowed into the classroom based setting based on CSE's mandates. Mm -hmm. So sex offenders Mm -hmm. were not, or were not allowed to be in the classroom with us, Mm -hmm. um, because there were women and because there were young women. Mm Um, but I think that there. are the guys were allowed to walk around in their own clothes. They were allowed to go to work. Um, there were no fences. Uh, there were no cells. They lived in dormitories with roommates. Um, they were allowed to create relationships with those roommates, like friendships. Um, a couple of the guys used to go jogging together every morning. Um, they had full access to, to their culture, to ceremony, to medicine. Um, And they were, for a couple of them, it was like the first time that they had ever been in touch with their indigenous ancestry. Wow. Um, Wow. And so it was really, it was really important for them. And it was, it was crucial to their healing process. Um, It, uh, it was, it was the thing that transformed them was, was the access to their own culture, which they had been denied through so many things through their entire lives. Yeah, the erasure um, that colonialism can bring, that essentially white supremacy can bring, because this idea mm-hmm. that whiteness is superior to all other um, ethnicities and cultures and races, like this idea that whiteness is a thing that is fundamentally better than anything else, is fundamentally white supremacy. Yeah. It's it's not just a belief um, that, that whiteness is superior. It's typically a belief that whiteness is superior, and that's correct, That that there should be um, a higher social status for white people. Um, and Mm. it's, it's that belief, I think that qualifies it as white supremacy, but anyways, it is really easy for that to be. And I say this just as a mixed race person that's, um, that has Indian, which is to say from India, um, ancestry, but not any ancestry indigenous to the Musqueam land I was born on or any connection to the indigenous peoples of, Um, I guess I should say so-called Canada. So it is, it is in my experience really easy for white supremacy to sort of be really like pervasive in like really unexpected ways and to have it like come up even in my own thoughts sometimes where I'm just like, wow, like I like the system really gets you as a, as a mixed race person sometimes that you Mm -hmm. just internalize all this garbage and then unlearning that is a privilege. It takes time and it takes access to racialized people. So I can totally resonate with how important it is to have access and, um, you know, just to your own culture. And in fact, even recently I was, I was uh, mentioning to you um, the decorative cutting that I got. um, Yeah. That was a Lotus that you saw. And for me, that was really significant and important because uh, my middle name is Aravind, which uh, can be translated a couple of different ways, but essentially either means um, lotus or lotus-eyed one. 
which is to mm-hmm. say, I believe Krishna. But uh, yes. yeah, so lotuses have always had special significance for me, and they do in in Indian mythology as well. Not to go on too wide of a tangent, but it was very significant for me to sort of be getting more in touch with my culture and in celebrating Diwali just recently, um, which is, it's, it's a celebration of the victory of light over darkness, but it's also Indian new year sort of, Mm -hmm. um, because there is a lunar calendar that, that India traditionally has operated on in some parts. So, having like a new year, having the start of a new thing, having access to my own culture, that was like a very significant thing for me in my life. And I can only imagine what it would be like if there had been um, more forces actively erasing my ability to access my culture, because I do feel like there was obstruction for me accessing my culture. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go into too, too much explicit detail about that. um, But there was obstruction for me accessing my own culture and a lot yeah. of that obstruction was racist and um, even internalized racism. Um, and like that whole thing of like, I'm afraid of teaching my child or um, someone I care about, about this culture because I'm worried that I'm sharing the target of being targeted by racism with them, that I'm giving them a gift, but it's also a curse like that, that pervasive mm. fear of, of sharing some of the most vital and important pieces of ourselves and of our identities. Um, mm-hmm. Like that is the, the legacy of white supremacy and colonialism. And I can only yeah. imagine with indigenous folks, it is so much more severely affecting them, not just because mm-hmm. of um, the way that residential schools were genocidal and super destructive, but also in just the ways that anti-Indigenous sentiment continues to this day, and they continue to be harmed by the legacy of colonialism. Oh yeah, um, there was a there was a guy in the the class with us. Um, he talked about how when he was first incarcerated, um, they brought an elder in, but they weren't they weren't allowed to smudge, um, so they had to mime smudging, like pantomime yeah. it, um, because you couldn't bring you couldn't bring that stuff in. It was prohibited Wow. by CSC. And it was like, it was just like, yeah, to, that's... yeah. It's like to be in that, like just to be in that situation, just as a, as a, as a white person. Um, most of the time when I was, when I was in the circle with the men, I just, I just closed my mouth, opened my ears and I just listened because I think that was the most important thing that I could do. Mm. Um, and I, I learned a lot. Um, and I was confronted with a lot of things that again, were really examples of, of, of white supremacy that I was like, Oh, why am I uncomfortable with this? And I have to sit with that. And, mm. um, but it was like, it's, thing is when white people get upset about things like that, it's never, it's, it's never about you personally. It's about the system. Mm. And it's about this system of right, white supremacy that we have created in this country and really in this, in, in a broader cultural context that just yeah. that you were talking about that, that we see white people as being superior. Um, and it's, it's BS. It's, it's complete BS. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was a it was it was a really incredible experience where I learned a lot. Um, 
and uh, I got to make a lot of really incredible connections with with the men who were in the circle with me. Mm-hmm. And they were um, they were incredibly welcoming. There was a uh, on our last day. Um, so what basically what I did with the the classroom setup was like we would do creative writing. We did theater games, um, and then some of us did portions of scenes from this really beautiful play called where the blood mix is by Kevin Loring. Okay. Um, he's an indigenous playwright. Um, and one of the guys in the group actually grew up in the community that Kevin Loring was writing about. And so it was like really personal for him because he was like, all these places that he's writing about, like, I I know these places. And he was just so invested. Um, and he, I got to work with him in my group and, um, really <laughs> watch these guys who were like, Oh, I'm not going to read a script. I don't want to do that. And then by the last week, they're so into it right. and they're so invested. And they're just like, they're just like, yeah, this is awesome. Acting is so great. Um, <laughs> so we got to perform with them and it was, it was incredible. And a couple of them were really good. Like, damn. Yeah. Um, and then at the end we had this, uh, the, the lodge invited us to this big, it was a big feast. And then we got to, uh, there were new staff coming in, old staff going out, um, new residents coming in. So new, new inmates, um, they call them residents. They don't call them inmates, but CSC would brand them as inmates. Um, so new, new people coming in and then people being released. And so they do a blanket ceremony for everybody. Um, and there's their song and celebration and it's just a, uh, if you can go to one of them, it's just a, it's an incredible experience. Um, and it's really valuable. And I think it's something that everyone should experience just to see a healing lodge in action is, is it's so the opposite of the way that I would picture corrections being run. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really incredible. Like I'm really glad to hear that there are alternatives in Canada and that CSC is even open to that functioning is incredible, but it is also really sad that there are only 51 inmates in one and that we only have three total in Canada. Yeah. Um, and I think there's only one in BC. Sure. And that was the one that I went to. Mm Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, um, again, in line with your thesis that you were going to observe, um, essentially art therapy, um, but Mm -hmm. theater as a program for incarcerated inmates. Yeah. Um, this kind of, it, it was weird because this, this program came up after I had finished my thesis. Um, it's, it's done through my old university, which is Kwantlen and the program is called inside out. Um, Mm. and so each, iteration is different and you would learn different things and you would do different things. I just happened very much by chance to fall into the program where they were doing theater and art. Um, so it was, it was a really serendipitous, uh, thing to be doing in my last semester, totally. uh, before I went to my master's and it, it gave me, um, so much more context and, and all of a sudden the work that I was doing felt um, so much more immediate and so much more crucial, Mm. um, especially to making systemic change because I, I saw, um, a couple of the guys in the program were like, really, they didn't really seem too interested at the beginning. 
Um, and then the more we played theater games and the more we all got to know each other, um, through just conversation, like we, we, we all ate lunch together. Um, we were literally with them for like eight hours, two days a week, uh, nonstop. Um, so you get to know people really fast. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so a couple of the guys, I just, I watched them change. It it almost felt like overnight. Mm. Um, one of them especially was really withdrawn. And then by the end he was extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, yeah, it was just like, uh, it, it made me, it was really emotional to watch his change. And, uh, yeah, he's just a, he's a fantastic human being. That's really glowing praise. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an excellent awesome. carver. Say that again, an excellent witch? He's an excellent carver. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like, so you just, did more than just theater then? Uh, yeah. They, well, a couple of the guys were carvers, so they would bring in boxes that they had made, mm-hmm. um, just general carvings that they had made um, as part of their own personal projects, mm-hmm. um, and then would explain what it meant to them. Um, just as, as individuals. So it was really all forms of art were allowed. Like one of the guys was a musician. Um, so he, he actually, he had like four or five albums out before he was arrested. Wow. Uh, yeah. And he is like probably the best guitar player I've ever seen. Um, so there was a lot of talent in that room. Uh, that is, I, I was glad that it was being utilized in the way that it was. Yeah, like permitting people to continue following their passions and doing the things they're good at doing. Like that's only going yeah. to try and help maintain some humanity for them and yeah, promote yeah. functionality when they are released. Yeah. Yeah, and a couple of the guys who were musicians, they played us like they did like a show at lunch, like mm-hmm. in the in the longhouse. So okay. we went to go see their show. That's exciting. Like their little concert. It was awesome. It was it was really awesome. And the the amount of uh I mean, it's not really like a ton of freedom, but they, they got a lot of, of creative freedom to do what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was just, uh, we need more of these places. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, we yeah. just need more of them. They, I think they should become just totally normalized, honestly. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you were talking about, um, I don't think we actually did talk about recidivism and um, mm. the recidivism rates of people coming out of healing lodges versus incarceration. Do you have any numbers on that? Uh, 6% recidivism rate among healing lodge residents compared to 11% of the national prison population, but that was in 1998. Wow. So, like, about half. Yeah. That's incredibly effective as far as programs go. Like that's literally seeing half as many people returning to prison after being released. Yeah. And it's because it's because they're treated like human beings. It's because they are allowed, like they're literally allowed to hold jobs and volunteer in the community and give back to the community all while they're still serving their sentence. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. And they can do, uh, they can do like, uh, Oh, I can't remember what they're called. ETAs or UT- ETAs are ex- escorted temporary absences, and okay. then UTAs are unescorted temporary absences. So, a lot of the guys will do ETAs back to their home communities, 
okay. um, for things like Christmas and holidays and things like that, okay. just so they can see their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the people with the most, like who have the most privilege with the most good behavior will get unescorted temporary absences, but you have to be back by a certain date and a certain time. And, uh, right. a lot of them seem to abide by those, those rules, um, right. because they don't want to screw up. They don't want to go back to a medium security prison where they're not allowed right. all of these freedoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can definitely see how there is some, there is, there is some of the success that could potentially be attributed to people do not want the alternative, but regardless, yeah. like if, if someone literally said, um, what if we could half the number of people, um, coming back into prison after we release them? I, I can't imagine yeah. any sane taxpayer saying, don't do that. Exactly. <laughs> right? And and I can't it, imagine. It, Sorry, and it's ahead. not that these facilities are more expensive. Right. Um, like I, I don't believe, I think, I think honestly, I think building a supermax is more expensive than building a healing lodge sure. where everybody has access to their culture, um, their own practices and really their own freedom while still being incarcerated. Um, I, I don't think that there's, you can't really put a price on treating somebody like a human being. Yeah. And that's, that's my thing. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, a great statement. I think absolutely there need to be more of them. Like I couldn't agree more that, uh, we need to provide people access to better facilities to do corrections and rehabilitation. Yeah. So you mentioned that there was a lot of crying when we spoke about this last, I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Um, yeah, the, uh, the men were, uh, extraordinarily vulnerable in sharing their stories. Um, a lot of them talked about, uh, their history with colonialism, with residential schools, um, with just trauma in general. Um, and it was, uh, it was a really incredible and vulnerable thing to witness. And it also made everybody else in the circle more willing to share, um, their own experiences, regardless of whether they were indigenous or not. Um, it was really just a, it became just a circle of just us sharing our own experiences as human beings. Mm. And a lot of that stuff was, was sharing trauma and listening to trauma, but it didn't feel like, you know, like when you, when you tell someone like a sad story, something Mm -hmm. that happened to you that was traumatic and they kind of give you that, like, they're there, like, don't cry kind of pat. There was none of that. Right. Um, it was very much an acknowledgement of one another's pain, Mm. which is when you're, for me, when I'm, when I'm telling a story that's upsetting me, that's all I want. I I just want to be heard. I just want somebody to say, I recognize what's happening and I'm going to sit here with you and I'm going to witness what's happening. And so those men taught me how to do that. Um, and it's a, it's a skill that I don't know if I could have learned that anywhere else. Just just mm. to witness somebody dealing with some shit and just to sit there and uh and have that moment with them um and really hold space for them. Um 
yeah, it was, it was extraordinarily valuable. And, uh, I, I, I'm so thankful that they were so vulnerable and, and willing to share that experience with me. Um, yeah. yeah. That's incredible. It, it sounds like what I have heard healing circles can be like, would you describe that mm-hmm. as a healing circle? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like when, when someone's story was done, they carried it around with them. It was just kind of like you, you put all your shit out in the open and it's just in the circle. Everyone acknowledges it. And then when it's time to decompress and eat lunch, you literally decompress and eat lunch. And it's fantastic. That's great. It's not like you're carrying that weight around with you and you can talk about it with people. I mean, I, I revealed some stuff that happened to me that was quite traumatic. And a couple of the guys talked with me about it at lunch, not really in depth, but just like, was like, that was really, that was really awesome. Uh, what you said or, or somebody else had a moment and we all just kind of like, that was really great. What you said, are you, are you okay? Do you need like a minute away from everybody or do you want to be with us? And they're like, no, I want to, I want to hang out. Uh, cause I, I, I feel better. Like I've, I've just like, I've let all this shit go. Mm. Um, yeah, it was just, uh, one of the guys described it as he, the only way he could describe it was, was magical and and yeah, that's a, that's a really good way of putting it. Mm. Yeah. That's intense. That's, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's incredible. So you talked about healing lodges as programs to divert folks away from more violent, more harmful incarceration. So the context that all this is sort of happening in for me in terms of intimacy is really talking about like restoring the relationship a person has with themselves through mm-hmm. trauma or rather mm-hmm. restoring the disruption that trauma brings to a relationship with oneself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was just trying to get that straight in my head. Cause it, it seems to me that your relationship with yourself is sort of like the wellspring from which intimacy almost comes from. Like it's, yeah, it's so much easier to have intimate relationships with other people if you are really proximal to yourself, if you're in your body, if you're, you know? Yeah. So then talking yeah, I know, about, I know for, for me, like when I was, when I was really sick, uh, like with my mental health issues and my, mm. um, addiction issues, I, I couldn't, I couldn't have a healthy relationship. It was, it was just impossible. Mm. I couldn't have a relationship with me or literally anybody else. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that addressing that trauma and really recognizing it in yourself and learning to be okay with the fact that you've gone through some stuff. Yeah. Um, no matter how big or how small, I mean, I trauma is trauma. Like I don't, when people try to minimize it, I'm just like, no, um, if it was traumatic for you, then it was traumatic. Um, you just just it's called trauma I, I don't think that it's uh yeah there's no measuring stick it's it's something every traumatized person seems to do is like this well but other people have it worse than me and i think it's a coping strategy to feeling better but yeah it's only helpful some of the time yeah it's very yeah. helpful as well to take a step back from that minimizing place and just recognize it and accept it for what it is and yeah you can't really move through it or move on without doing that step yeah 
And I think some of that minimizing, I know for me came from like watching my mom deal with mental illness Mm. and just being like, well, I didn't die. So I guess it's not that bad. And then I saw that it was like, Oh, that's so strong. And then I started doing that and it's really fucked up. Yeah. Um, like when you really think about it, um, yeah. So much of this stuff's intergenerational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the yeah. only real question is like, what are we going to do about it now? Oof. I don't know. I, I feel like that if somebody solved that question, like I would give them a Nobel Prize. Right. <laughs> like... <laughs> you have solved the millennial crisis. <laughs> here's here's your medal. Love it. Um. And all of you who did not solve the millennial crisis, here's your medal for participation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. So was there any creative writing happening? Uh, the, in uh, Circle? At the Healing Lodge. Yeah, that's kind of how we started. Um, uh, one of the one of the folks who was involved, he's a, a classmate of mine. Um, he's a, a slam poet and he is just like incredible with words like it is. <laughs> Like it, it like, I, I would try to write a poem and then it would just come so easily to him. And I'd be like, I have to take an angry nap because I can't <laughs> do this as well as you. Oh, that's great. But he's, he's legit incredible. Um, I, I'll plug, I'll plug him on the podcast cause he'll love it. His name is Tawaham. Um, they just went to the, I think it was like the Canadian slam poetry finals in like Guelph. Guelph, Ontario awesome. a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. So he was in the program sp- with me. And, how do you spell their name? Uh, T-A-W-A-H-U-M. Tawaham. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And they're non-binary. It goes by he or they. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we opened with creative writing and I was so blown away by how many of the guys were sharing Mm. their writing, like just, um, and how personal it was. Um, yeah. So that, that was kind of how we, that was the first couple of weeks first or first couple of days, I should say. And then we sort of got more into the theater and the theater games. The the guys love the theater games. (laughs) (laughs) Like we played one called, do you like your neighbor? Okay. And we became obsessed with playing this game because it, it involved <laughs> like running around the circle and like crashing into each other and trying to steal each other's seats. And just like That's great. Yeah. Everyone was just like in like laughter tears by the end of the game. So yeah, it was a favorite for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like you did some actual like script reading, like theater stuff, acting, creative writing. Were there other kinds of art that folks did in the programs? Um, let me see. I painted something for my personal project. A couple of people did photography. Um, we couldn't bring cameras into the institution. Obviously they just brought in pictures that they had taken Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of music, a lot of music. Um, I, I feel like theater and music were the, the main ones 
um, that were really popular. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you were mentioning earlier as well um, the mixed race piece of colonialism and how like Mm -hmm. some of these folks were only just starting to access their culture. Yeah. Yeah, I just wish I had a question to ask about it because I'm kind of curious to hear you talk more on uh, on the mixed race piece. Just as a mixed race person, I'm super interested in any insights you might want to share. Um, I think without getting too personal into their own stories and sure. revealing sure. too much, um, I think it was just like for in terms of accessing the culture, for some of them, it was the first time. Um, and that was really, I think for me, that was the most kind of gut wrenching thing to listen to. Mm. Um, because it was like, it, it was just like this, how, how messed up is that, that this is, this is the, you, you have to go to jail to experience your culture. Like how, how absolutely screwed (laughs) up is our system? How absolutely screwed up is our country that in order for you to experience your own family and your own culture, you have to literally be, be in prison. Um, it made me sad. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. Like it just, it, it, and it, and it made me angry. Um, because yeah, that's just, it's colonialism in action, man. Like there's just, there's so much supremacy culture going on around whiteness and Europe and the ideas of, being racialized there's just so much shame around it and i can only imagine it's considerably worse for someone indigenous and even like i i wrote about this a little bit in my thesis too like even access to healing lodges and like indigenous-based programming csc picks and chooses who is quote-unquote worthy right of of accessing their culture which is their absolute right yeah um yeah, yeah it's, that's, it's, that's really fucked. Yeah, we just we live in a we we live in a hellscape. I just don't know how else to it. Is it is awful? Um, yeah, it's just uh, and the fact that they have they have that power to do that is is severely messed up. Um, right. Yeah, and the fact yes. that some indigenous people don't even know who they are, or where they came from or what their language is or anything like that. I mean, that just like, right. That it's it's like... on colonialism has not ended. We have just rebranded it. Um, right. Well, even when we yeah. talk about, um, child and family services, taking youth out of homes, it's like, yeah. So we're, we're still stealing kids. We're just, we believe ourselves to be justified in doing that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even it's though... the 60 scoop all over again. Right. Even though, white families that struggle with the same issues have access to all kinds of interventions before you get to stealing their kids. But indigenous folks, it's just like the go-to is take the kids out of the home. It seems. It's like that one wrong move and the government shows up at your door and all of a sudden your kids are gone. It's just so messed up. It's, it's not promoting healing. No, not at all. That just makes me think of the um, the prairies like uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, not to rag on them again, but they're just they're so racist in the way that they incarcerate so youth. And, and like, I'm not saying this subjectively. I'm saying this from the numbers. I think it's 81 mm-hmm. percent of the indigenous of the, of the story of the population of incarcerated boys in Saskatchewan is indigenous. Eighty two percent is is of the girls is indigenous and they make up 14 percent of the total population. 
It's disgusting. I was like, reading. It, I was reading Stats Canada, and yeah. Mani- Manitoba is worse. Manitoba is fifteen percent of the general population, and boys make up ninety-two percent. Um, like oh. indigenous indigenous boys are ninety-two percent of all the boys incarcerated, and the really interesting thing about the girls is, of the girls, ninety-eight percent of them are indigenous, and it's just like at a certain point you have to start asking like, how is it possible even? Unless literally they're just either the programs that have been because it's it could be two things. One is either Mm -hmm. the programs that have been successful at diverting girls from being incarcerated have been applied in a racist fashion to non-indigenous peoples. That's possible. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, the process of convicting girls to the point where they need to be incarcerated. um, Sorry. Is it in custody or is it incarcerated? I feel like I'm, I don't want to give the wrong information to it's folks. It's probably, problems. it's probably incarcerated. It's either incarcerated or in custody. I'm not sure. Um, so feel free yeah. to look it up, but uh, yeah. Or they're just only incarcerating girls who are indigenous. They're not incarcerating girls who are not indigenous. So it's one of those two things. Yeah. But either way with 15% of the general population being indigenous, like that's, that's nuts. Like 85% of the population makes up 2% um, <laughs> of the incarcerated population in the demographic of, of, of girls. So not women, people younger. At some point, it's like, how do you, how does CSE not look in the mirror and go, maybe the problem is me? It, it reminds me of and that you know sketch I mean? with that British guy being like, are we the baddies? It's so, it's so real. <laughs> Right. Like literally like, yes, you're the bad guys yeah, and that's, and that's are. okay, but you need to fix this shit. CSC. Yeah. It's, it speaks to, it speaks to a problem with policing, speaks yep. to a problem with lack of programming, lack yep. of support, yep. um, probably lack of access to their own communities and culture. Again, yeah. ongoing colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just, <sighs> We are, we are failing indigenous people and we will continue to fail indigenous people until we actually start fucking listening to them. Oh, yes. That, <laughs> and, that's a good summary. Like, yeah. And that like, it's, it's just, yeah, that's just what I've, what I've, not no, what I've come was... to, but what I've read from other indigenous activists. It's like, yeah. if you want to make change, you have to start listening to us. Yeah. And, and we continually don't. And I mean, um, I've, my eyes have been opened even as like a, a white academic. I mean, like five years ago, I knew nothing about this stuff and like, what a, what a failing on me, um, to not educate myself much earlier. Um, yeah, that's totally fair. I feel the same way as a settler. Like even as a POC, I'm still not indigenous and like yeah. my struggles are very different from indigenous struggles. And mm-hmm. I have said some very racist things in my past and there has been a lot yep. of anti-indigenous sentiment um, coming out of my mouth in the past. And um, I mean, hopefully before I started recording this show, um, but yeah, just my family of origin had a lot of really intense anti-indigenous sentiment and that's terrible And I can own that as harmful as fuck. I can own that as, yeah, this was really, really a shitty thing that I used to participate in. And now I can see it more clearly, maybe not completely, but more clearly. And I'm doing what I can to unlearn the anti-Indigenous colonial sentiment that's been just drilled into me. 
Yeah. At a certain point, you know, the buck has to stop with you and you have to start taking responsibility as a settler for the way indigenous people continue to be mistreated and maltreated and harmed by our systems. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm always learning and I'm absolutely not perfect. Um, and I will continue to be imperfect just because this is not my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and because I'm, uh, I benefit from white supremacy. Like I absolutely do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I definitely, and I definitely benefit from not being indigenous. Like just the fact that I'm a settler, you know, like I have parents that, uh, you know, they rented and they worked and they, they lived on indigenous land that, you know, mm-hmm. their, their forefathers did not have to pay for, you know, in a sense. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But I think, I, I think the best thing that, that I can do is just to keep listening and keep learning mm-hmm. and keep changing my behavior. And, um, and honestly, like, and, and include more of this, this discourse in my, in my academia, um, and bringing it into these spaces. Um, just as like, if somebody says something that's, you know, anti-indigenous in class, just be like, Hey, shut the fuck up. That's not cool. (laughs) Yeah. That's not an okay thing to say. And this is why it's not okay to say, and here is how you can not be an asshole in the future. Right. Um, because that's what, that's how I learned. Um, is people just, people called me out. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally a call-in is, is better, but at the same time, yeah. some people just don't have the emotional energy if they're from that marginalized group. And I'm like, I try and give those people a uh-huh. pass if they call me out. Cause it's like, cool. I get it. Like you either don't feel safe alone with me or you just don't want to do that work, which is legit. Well, it's like when, uh, when I see that stuff on Twitter, like, um, just like some, some white person just being racist and being like, Oh, well, why should we have this thing for indigenous people and indigenous folks like in their mentions are literally like, dude, Google it. Like, I'm not going to do this labor for you. Right. I'm so tired of doing this shit for white people. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, the onus is on white people to educate ourselves far much better than we have. Yeah. Cause it's not even like to become a master of quote unquote wokeness. It's like, just have some idea why people say these things, like some idea, just understand what the perspective is on the other side of the table for folks who aren't white. Yeah. And just try not to be settlers. a fucking dick. Like how hard is it? It's, it's pretty hard if you've been conditioned that that's the right way to be your whole life. That's yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the way that I look at the racism that I've sort of embodied in my life. When I, when I have said racist things or had racist ideas or thoughts or like performed racism, um, yeah. which to be honest, has been almost exclusively leveled at indigenous folks. If I think about my life, I'm like, I've been really fortunate to not have that much experience saying racist things or doing racist things with the exception mm-hmm. of the fact that I was a settler and I definitely have made mistakes in terms of like, ugh, yeah. Just the way that, that people think what they're saying is completely okay. And it's just not. Yeah. So I can definitely understand how people can say things that are like powerfully, misunderstanding a history of harm and genocide and oppression and just be like, well, but this is just the way it is. Like, isn't that just the way it is? And then people are like, no, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Which I don't know how that, how that drew me to wex it, but 
the very notion that fucking Alberta and other provinces are like, well, we should start talking about Wexit because we don't want to pay money and we're angry that we haven't diversified our own economy. And it's like, cool, I get it. You're suffering right now. I'll give you some latitude. But could you not call it Wexit? You do realize BC is also part of the West, right? My favorite thing about that is BC is like, um, no, we're good. Thank you. Yeah. Did you Thanks see the for be- uh, including us, but no, we don't want it. So did you see the Beaverton article about that? Yes. Oh my God. The BC exit Wexit was the best. <laughs> it's, I have to say, it's really weird living in a province um, that continually wants to separate. Right. As someone from the West Coast. Right. And me just being like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? <laughs> You, you mean um, like Ontario I, doesn't really value your values and doesn't really, but nope, I mean, those aren't the same that. things, right? Because we're comparing like the Anglophone experience of British Columbians to like the Francophone experience of Quebecers, yeah. which is going to obviously have very different power dynamics. I, I will say I forgot that the Bloc Quebecois existed until I moved here about two months ago. <laughs> well, last election, they didn't do very well. And arguably, it's only because Jagmeet Singh isn't white that the Bloc did so well last election in Quebec. But I'm going to get roasted in comments if I keep <laughs> if I keep sharing political opinions about things like that. Oh, Jagmeet I mean, Singh is the best. I'm just saying. But like... But like Tell me I'm wrong and that Quebecers don't partially dislike Jagmeet because he's not white. (laughs) Uh, It's like we all want to say I'm wrong. Yeah. We all want to be able to say I'm wrong. (laughs) I want to be wrong. I really do. But that's just my like cynical perspective with how poorly the bloc did last election and how well they did this election. It's and it, it it's weird because like I I looked at their campaign signs, mm. and it was kind of like look how quirky and family oriented we are, and I was like you are racist, you are completely separatist, and nobody likes you. And yet everybody voted for you. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like when you don't want to vote for any of the any of the other parties, the bloc is like the safe Quebec vote because at least they're not going to fuck over Quebec. Yeah, and it is. I, I will say is it, it is extraordinarily hard to find their platform in English. Sure, I had to Google Translate most of it. It's from my understanding, and I don't speak from experience. Um, I haven't looked it up, but I have had folks who do speak French tell me it's surprisingly similar to the NDP platform. Yep. It's just it uh, also includes separatism and and questionable. Right possibly quite racist things although i haven't read them myself so i'm always cautious about leveling well, because there's that, i can't remember what the bill is called but it's the bill in uh quebec where um if you're a public servant you are not allowed to wear um any kind of religious headdress so like right. a, a hijab or a turban or anything like that which is it's specifically targeted at brown people um and I, it's it's believe it's bill 62 62 is that yeah i'm just looking it Uh, up right now yeah quebec passes bill banning niqab burqa while receiving public services yeah and now they're doing a thing where new immigrants to quebec have to pass a uh francophone values test oh my goodness yeah yeah so i moved to the problems at the right time it's it is just such a 
it is such a microcosm. Like some folks in Quebec will talk about it as a country within a country. Yeah. Honestly, that's what it feels like. Like mm-hmm. all of the signs are in French. All the bus signs are in French. Um, it is, it is a struggle if you do not speak French. And I think sure. they make it hard on purpose. And I like, I understand that there is like a history pre silent revolution that was, um, that was very discriminatory against francophones and that anglophones had a lot of power and, and very much used it against francophones. So like, I respect that there is a history of discrimination against francophones and there's a reason that Quebec has a proverbial chip on its shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, like there does seem to be a lot of like, I mean, you want to talk about values like Canadian values of inclusivity and diversity. Like I thought those were adopted in every province so it's kind of difficult to hear them talking about francophonic values being different from that. But maybe that's just because I'm an Anglophone. Yeah. And I like when I read it, I was like, I don't even know what francophone values are. And like, I live here. I would say that Frank. And, and again, this is as an Anglophone. So like I'm probably I think complete... it's only speaking French. I mean, <laughs> I think <clears throat> I think francophone values, again, tend to be much more social than Anglophone values as evidenced by more social policies. And like, there's a lot that's really good about their social policies. There's a lot that's really good about having really accessible post-secondary and inexpensive Mm -hmm. medical schools. And like, there are a lot of great things that Quebec has going for it, but like a lot of the hatred towards Brown and Muslim folks is not one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, um, I will say, like just living here, the rent is really cheap. Um, sure. My co- our cost of living has gone down. There are really fantastic things, but like, again, like you said, like just if you are an immigrant from un- any yeah. other country other than Canada, um, they make it really hard for you to just live here. That sucks. Um, much less get a job. Um, my husband was reading a post about somebody who is, who is immigrating from, uh, I think it was, I think it was the middle East. Mm-hmm. And not only did they figure out that they had to learn English, but they also had to learn French because they wanted to move to Quebec. Right. Um, so they have to learn two European languages right. at the same time. Yeah. I mean, at least they're similar in some respects. Yeah. But like that, I just, that's, that sucks. That is extra hard. Yeah. And I just, I don't know. I, I have a, I have a lot of issues with this province. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's fair whenever you move to a new place, there is always going to be a period of adjustment. And the only thing that really sticks oh. out like a sore thumb is like the anti-Islamic sentiment that is just racist as fuck. That doesn't need to be there. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. That is, that is the one thing where I'm just like, man, Quebec, I really try and defend you and be on your side all of, as much as I can as an ally, as an Anglophone ally. And just like, I cannot get behind the racism. I just don't understand where it comes from. No. And it's becoming, it's becoming more and more vicious and more and more prevalent. Um, yeah, it's just, that's really terrible. I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, we talked about a lot of different things today. We, but we are sort of we are sort of getting to a, a nice natural close before we continue to rag on Quebec anymore, and it is decided that I'm a, <laughs> a horrific bigot that that hates Quebecers, which is not true at all. I think Quebec is quite lovely in a lot of its culture, um, but again, I'm going to call it racism when I see it, and like yep. so much of that shit is just so fucking steeped in racism, and people need to like 
own your shit. You know, own your shit, people. Figure out where your blind Maybe. spots are. Do your learning. Uh, yeah, stop being so racist. Please stop being so racist. And you know what? Let's throw misogyny on that on that fire heap as well. And just stop being so yeah. misogynistic as well. You know, while we're at it, transphobia, fatphobia. Let's just, I mean, just hurl all of them onto that bonfire and get it yeah. all out. It can all go. It can all go. Yeah. Good way to end the conversation. Yana, thank you so much for, again, coming on the show and talking so much about these really interesting things with me. Oh, thank you for having me. This was awesome. Great. Now my cat is in my lap being like, I can have podcast. She's like, I'm helping. You are helping by being cute, little cat. You can lie down in my lap if you want, but you need to stop <laughs> making everything yours. Oh, jeez. It's a good thing that I put the lid back on that. Otherwise, there'd now be a liter of water everywhere. Everything they do is calculated and definitely on purpose. I feel like there's a criminology of cats course that could be taught. My cat would be like sociopathic level. Fuck. I love that it's like, why do cats offend? We've tried tuna interventions. They work 8% of the time. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.